We're beginning a, a series on the Gospel of Mark this morning. And whether we've been Christians for as long as we can remember, or we are just now considering Christianity seriously for the first time, even if we're still skeptical and hardened, we can all benefit from a more extensive look at Jesus. Christianity is about Jesus. To know God, we look at Jesus. To understand God and his great work in the world, we look at Jesus. To know how to be truly human, how to be what we were created to be, we look at Jesus. We're a Jesus-centered people. And of course, we believe in the Christian church that every biblical text is about Jesus. But in a special way, when we come to the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, this is obvious. Jesus walks on every page in every chapter. That's why beginners in the Christian faith are often really encouraged to start their engagement with the Bible by reading a gospel, and sometimes, often, especially the Gospel of Mark. But the Gospels aren't just for beginners. For those who have been living the Christian life for a good while, there's a real danger for all of us in our lives. We can domesticate Jesus. We can put Jesus in a box. We can get too familiar And I'm not suggesting that we do this willfully. More often than not, our lives can just get focused on trying to fix what isn't easy. Or we get busy and distracted by the next thing. Or sometimes we're simply lulled to sleep, so to speak, by the mundane ebbs and flows of our lives. Deadlines, edits, lesson plans, Fitbit steps, lines at Costco, etc. And in that world, the revolutionary king and his upside-down kingdom become often quite marginalized by to-do lists and basic needs. So Jesus can get relegated in our lives to being merely a helper for our busy and overwhelming schedules, rather than the world's true and loving king who beckons us onward to something bold, something revolutionary, something powerful, something life-transforming. Our vision can get so small and narrow, and my hope is that by taking up the Gospel of Mark together in these coming months, this will be shocking and reinvigorating for us in the best of ways, like jumping into an ice-cold lake on a hot summer day, causing our hearts to pound, our visions to expand, and our lives to reflect God's kingdom in more faithful and exciting ways. Those are my hopes for taking up the Gospel. That's actually why the earliest Christians told these stories about Jesus. It wasn't just to remember what happened, but it was to be generously invited again by the retelling of these stories that were the foundation of their sense of life and the world and what was going on in their lives in the world and what they were called to. They told these stories to be invited again out of discouragement, out of fear, out of conformity to the world around them into a radical, renewed, and full life with Jesus that is joy-filled and, at the same time, cross-shaped. Simply put, the Gospels bring us to Jesus the King and invite us again, or maybe for the first time, to follow him, to become his disciple. In Mark's prologue, he gets right to the point. And that's where we'll be this morning. If you have your Bible, open up to to Mark chapter 1. 
These opening verses clarify five important matters from the outset that we want to consider this morning. And as we proceed in the months ahead, these are five things that we will want to remember and we'll encounter again and again. First, Mark's story is gospel, good news. So he begins, the beginning of the gospel or the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. But my question is, what does gospel mean? I was at a family camp in August with all of my family. I have three siblings and all of our kids and my parents to celebrate their 50th anniversary. And so my brothers and I, I'm the youngest of four, my brothers and I entered into a three-on-three basketball tournament. And in the tournament, you can actually, we hadn't played basketball, let's be clear, in quite a long time, um, especially at any fast pace. And so we knew we'd struggle, but you could actually have a fourth player in the tournament. So you could have a substitute, which was really helpful. And our fourth player, our secret weapon, was our 20-year-old nephew, who is six foot three and 225 pounds and quick and agile. And that gave us a lot of confidence. The only problem was that he had to leave early due to another obligation, only a few minutes into our game. So we're getting crushed, and he has to leave, and we're feeling really terrible. I can still feel things in my body from those games, (laughs) um, to be honest. Uh, And we're struggling. But then, lo and behold, as we're playing, with about five minutes to go, in walks our nephew. And he says, hey, I actually didn't have to be where I needed to be, so I can join you again. And it was as if our, our spirits lifted in that moment as he came running back onto the court, and one of us quickly ran off. And we actually were competitive. We still lost the game, but we actually were competitive. That was gospel. That was good news. Gospel means that someone powerful, capable, and benevolent has entered into your life, entered into the world, entered into your situation. Basketball, of course, is a very trivial example. Think instead of the example of liberation of a POW camp. There's been a change in authority. The guards that only the day before mocked you and beat you and spit on you are defeated, and they're now replaced by a different authority, an authority that has come to liberate you, to feed you, to clothe you, to bless you, and to see you flourish. Everything changes in that moment when someone in authority changes. That is gospel, a change in power that changes everything. In the Greco-Roman world, the word gospel was a Caesar word. It was used around the good news that a Caesar had been born. There's an inscription from from 9 BC, from the the, uh, ancient Greek town of Priene in western Turkey today, that talks about the birth of Caesar Augustus as the beginning of the good news, the gospel for the whole world. Because this emperor would be powerful and strong and provide peace and safety and protection for his people. In the Jewish world, gospel was a God word, no surprise. It was used twice in the book of Isaiah to refer to God's return to his people, to reign over them and all the world, and to bring rescue and redemption and salvation and forgiveness. Isaiah 40 through 55 tells that story. Gospel means that someone has taken the reins, and as a result, the world is different and better. Mark's story, firstly, is a gospel story. But this someone who takes the reins, and this is our second point, and Mark gets right to it, is Jesus. It's a gospel story centered on Jesus. The gospel of or concerning 
Jesus, who Mark tells us is the Messiah, the Son of God. Messiah means God's anointed king. And Son of God most usually actually means Messiah. That's the way it's used in verse 10. If you look ahead, or verse 11, when the voice comes from heaven at Jesus' baptism and says, you are my beloved Son. Son of God was a way of talking about Messiah. That roots back to Psalm 2 as well, and to 2 Samuel 7. But Son of God has a deeper meaning, a deeper shade of meaning, that somehow Israel's God has become present in and through Jesus with his world in an entirely new way. To dwell among them, to be a human being, to establish his kingdom, to take our plight upon himself. To make our pain his pain. So that he might make us and the world new. There is no doubt that that deeper dimension of the meaning of Son of God is resonating here in the opening verse of Mark's great story. It's the story of God coming near, God entering in. Now, Mark doesn't define these terms, does he, in verse 1. He just states them at the outset. Because he's inviting us into a narrative where he tells the stories about Jesus, about Jesus' life and teaching and death and resurrection that that will more fully and deeply reveal the meaning of these titles and thus the identity of Jesus. It's really interesting. There are two main sections of Mark's Gospel. Chapters 1 through 8, where Jesus is this miraculous worker of miracles, like a superhero. And then chapters, the end of 8 through chapter chapter 15, where Jesus enters into Jerusalem, finds conflict with the authorities of the day, and ends up dying on a Roman cross. Both of these sections end with a confession about the identity of Jesus. In Mark 8, Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? And and they say a prophet, or John the Baptist, or Elijah, or sorry, or Elijah, or a prophet. And then he says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, you remember what he says? He answers and he says, you are the Messiah. And that's a shift in this gospel. It's a revelation of who Jesus is. Then Jesus enters into Jerusalem and gets into conflict and teaches us all about what it really means to be the Messiah, what his vocation entails, and it's a surprising one. It's not one of victory and winning and strength. It's actually surprisingly and shockingly one of weakness and conflict and suffering in the name of love. And he ends up on this Roman cross and he ends up being mocked and beaten, and spit on, and made fun of. And at the end of his life, as he breathes his last, there's a centurion standing at the foot of the cross, and he watches Jesus breathe his last, and he says, this surely was the Son of God. In no uncertain terms, the structure of this gospel begins Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And at the two key moments, at the end of chapter 8, at the end of chapter 15, those titles come back. And what Mark is inviting us into is a story about the gospel, about Jesus. And as we unpack this story and read these stories for months together, we will come to encounter his identity, to understand him more and more. And I hope and pray to learn how to worship him, to follow him, to love him, to receive all that he has to give us more and more as we engage these stories. Now to grasp this identity, and this is our third point, 
It's a gospel about Jesus. But we need to hear Mark saying loud and clear in these opening verses that this story that he is telling is the fulfillment of a much larger and longer story of God and his people. Notice where he goes in verse 2. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I'm pointing backwards, he says. I'm pointing back to something that was looked forward to for centuries. And he gives us clues to this again and again. He also quotes from Exodus there as well, referring and reverberating back to the story of deliverance out of the wilderness. And Mark takes us into the wilderness with John the Baptist as a way of saying, this is going to happen again. He talks about the baptism of the Spirit, John the Baptist does, about what Jesus will bring, which was a long-awaited promise in Joel 2 and Ezekiel 36, that God would one day pour out his Spirit upon all flesh. Mark's saying, if you have ears to hear it, that's what I'm about to tell you about. That's what's coming. That's the fulfillment that's happening now. And what are Jesus' first words in this Gospel? Verse 15. The time is fulfilled. He couldn't be more clear. This isn't a brand new thing. I'm not showing up with a new show. I'm showing up, and something is happening that's fulfilling a long story that's been going from the beginning of creation. John makes this abundantly clear by beginning his gospel. In the beginning was the Word hearkening back to the beginning of Genesis and the opening of the Old Testament. But Jesus says it here. The time is fulfilled. Now is the time. Things have come to their fruition. This is the moment that the story that's been told for centuries is going to be climaxed. That the promises that God delivered to Abraham and the fathers and to David are going to come true. It's now. This story is being picked up. So to know Jesus and to understand the gospel and by that I mean the canonical book of Mark, means that we have to understand the whole story. Um, on this trip that we took over the summer to California, we visited, on Jameson's birthday, the guitar factory for Taylor Guitars. And it was a fun trip down to San Diego, and we got to walk through this factory. And, and it was beautiful. I didn't expect to be kind of beauty to be one of the responses of being in a place where there's why well, I should have expected it, craftsmanship and woodworkers, but they were shaping this wood into the body of the guitar and the necks of the guitar, and it was absolutely beautiful. And there are places where we'd walk, and you'd see all of the same parts set up together on a, on a tray. They looked very artistic, and they were beautiful, but if that's all you saw, and you didn't, in the course of visiting the Taylor Guitar Company and factory, you didn't get to see a Taylor guitar with those individual parts put together in their right context, creating beautiful music that we all enjoy and hear, then you wouldn't fully grasp what those parts' meaning was. This is true with Jesus. It's one thing to get hyper-focused here on his earthly work in ministry, but it's not, we, but, but to have ears to hear how what we're learning here is the fulfillment of everything that has come before puts Jesus in his proper context and helps us to, appropri uh, to appropriate and come to understand the depth of his meaning, the depth of his identity, the depth of his redemptive work that changes our lives. Now, I'm not suggesting for, the mo for a moment that you cannot pick up a gospel and know nothing about the Old Testament and still meet Jesus in a profound way. Absolutely. Do you need a deep intellectual understanding to follow Jesus? No. Thanks be to God. 
But if we listen to the gospel writers, to Mark, to Matthew, to Luke, to John, we are hearing overtones again and again of this is just the tip of the iceberg. This this actually has a whole depth behind it. And as we come to understand Jesus in the full narrative of the biblical story, we begin to understand his identity more and better. This fuller story, and this is our fourth point, teaches us, as Mark points out to us very clearly in his prologue in verses 12 and 13, that our real enemy is not ourselves, not corrupt leaders, not the person at work that we can't stand, not the spouse from whom we're estranged or who doesn't seem to understand understand our needs, or the child who is being incredibly difficult. Our actual and real enemy is Satan. And a huge part of the gospel, this great action, is that Jesus, the stronger one, comes to deal with our enemy. Mark shows us that Jesus is taken out into the wilderness by the Spirit. And he's in the wilderness being tempted for 40 days by this enemy of ours. Mark's economic and staccato-like style doesn't give us many details here. We get more in Matthew and Luke. But the lines of battle are clearly drawn. And what he's saying is what we will watch unfold in the rest of this beautiful narrative is Jesus' direct confrontation with the real enemy of God and of humanity. And Jesus will fight and win that battle. 1 John 3 says the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, which is tremendous news. Now, I have to say, talking about Satan and the devil or the powers of darkness probably makes a lot of us squirm in some ways. We're modern people. You know, we get that demon possession was really just psychological brain imbalance, and we've kind of explained away the powers of darkness in a lot of different ways. But speaking about the reality of our enemy doesn't bother Mark, the gospel writer, and it certainly doesn't bother bother Jesus. And there's so much pain in our world. Consider the reality of racism and of ethnic cleansing that has marred human history and has marred our own nation. The intense hatred or discarding of the other which that represents, and the narratives that we build to support our actions, the narratives of racial or ethnic difference. Are these not diabolical? Really? Or don't just think about the evil that's out there, but the evil that we find in our own hearts. As we push the other away, as we participate sometimes in these evils of racism, Or think about lust and the objectification of another human being for one's own gratification. Or pride, the need to push everyone else down so that we can get on top. Think of how willing sometimes we are to do things that harm us. Or that harm those that we love. How do we explain these things? 
I got an email last week from a friend of mine who's been doing college ministry for 20 years with the Navigators, and he's involved in Chicago in leading the Navigator ministry there. And the subject line of the email was simply this, we have an enemy. And it was his own reflections on his years of ministry and the way in which he's experienced and encountered that real opposition. We can pretend that we don't have an enemy. That's exactly what our enemy would like us to do. But Mark's gospel and Jesus' own ministry are directly pointing out, naming, and confronting our real enemy in profound and beautiful ways. From the beginning, Satan's purpose has been to diminish our humanity. Genesis 3, eat from this tree and you'll become great. The promise is always, you'll become better, but the result is always, you become less. It's always a lie. It's always a fraud. It's always a sham. That's what he's in the business of doing. And 1 Peter 5 says that you have your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. This is part of the New Testament witness. It's part of the gospel witness. And what Mark's gospel is saying right from the start is this fuller story that Jesus, and we understand his identity through, this fuller story names and identifies the real enemy. And it's not the person you're angry at. Because our struggle is not against flesh and blood, Paul says, but it's against the rulers and the authorities and the powers of this dark world. There's a spiritual battle going on, and whether you believe in it or not, it's happening, and what the result of that battle is, is the diminishment of your humanity through the pursuit of selfish ends and the rejection of God and the way of love. What Jesus comes to do And Mark 3 gets this beautifully in chapter 3 where he says, no one can plunder the strong man's house until he binds up the strong man and then he can plunder his goods. And that's that POW imagery again where Jesus is saying, I'm the liberator. I'm coming in. I'm the allies. And I'm setting you free so that you can begin to flourish. We have an enemy. This gospel makes that clear. The great news is that Jesus deals with this enemy. And that leads me to the fifth and final point of Mark's opening prologue. This gospel about Jesus that fulfills the story, that names the enemy, demands and evokes and calls for a deeply personal response. Look at Jesus' words. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. This is about power. It's about authority. It's about rule. So what does he say? Repent and believe the gospel. John the Baptist had said the same thing before, and people were coming out to him in the wilderness, confessing their sins and receiving a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The gospel is is this announcement that Jesus, that God is returning, that God is ascending to the throne, and that God, this Jesus, longs for you and calls out to you to let go. That's what repentance means. It means to to let go of those things that are controlling you, that you're following, that you're serving, to change your mind, to turn around, to choose a different path and believe in the gospel, to trust, to yield hand over control. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. 
And he calls us in the gospel, in these canonical works, in his life and ministry, to relinquish all other gods and to hand over our lives to him. This is both really hard and a lifelong journey because we love to hold on to control. We love to hold on to those things that we think are going to bring us what we think we need more quickly. So it's hard to let go of those things because we cherish them in some ways. But it's also a tremendously, tremendously liberating, life-giving, joy-filling reality to respond to this king in that way. Part of what Mark's gospel will show us is that this king isn't the king who sits way above the fray, but this king is the one who entered in and came to the lowest place and took upon himself your own pain and muck and mire so that you might be liberated and set free. We can't imagine a better king than this. And so his invitation to repent and believe, to respond to this story about his kingship and authority and rule This invitation is an invitation at the deepest level to live, to come to life, to flourish. And I trust we'll see that as we continue in the weeks ahead. That each time, each story we consider, each section of this gospel is going to invite us to respond. It's going to undo us and call us to be remade. To remember who we are as we follow and serve this risen king. Let's take some time in prayer. I would love to encourage you, just as one simple takeaway from this time, to think about those areas of your life that you're most reluctant to hand over to this king. That you're most reluctant to turn away from and to entrust to him. And then ask him to show you his grace. Ask him to show you his goodness. Ask him to show you his glory. His gentleness. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not put out. You may feel like a bruised reed or a smoldering wick. But ask him to show you how gentle he is. Let's take a couple minutes to do that. And then we'll stand together to say the Nicene Creed.